0: This is The Guardian. At the weekend, the 2022 FIFA World Cup kicked off.
1: It's still bouncing inside the penalty area. And there's the first goal.
0: From the moment Qatar was announced as the host, the tournament has been surrounded by controversy.
1: Qatar will welcome the world. Not everyone, however, feels equally welcome in a country where homosexuality is illegal.
0: Both Qatar and FIFA have disputed claims that 6,500
1: migrant workers have died. FIFA says that fans will not be allowed to buy alcohol around World Cup stadiums in Doha.
0: Included in the myriad of issues are questions around FIFA and Qatar's pledge that this will be the first ever carbon-neutral World Cup. According to FIFA's estimate, the World Cup will have a carbon footprint of 3.6 million tonnes.
1: Well, we did a little bit of digging around into FIFA's carbon footprint estimate, and we think it's way over the 10 million ton mark.
0: Organisers have said that they're going to offset the calculated emissions by buying carbon credits. It's a big environmental burden for a four-week event. But could it also be a moment when football reckons with its contribution to the climate crisis? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Paul McInnes, as a sports reporter for The Guardian, you've been covering how Qatar has been getting ready to host this year's World Cup, including its environmental impact. Now, I'm not a football person, I'll admit it. So I could be wrong in saying this, but I don't often put football and environmentalism together. So is the climate crisis an issue that football is particularly aware of?
1: It's a very tricky question, that, because you need to sort of uh, try and work out a scale for what's aware and what's unaware. If I had to, I would say unaware, but that doesn't mean that the official bodies aren't talking about it. UEFA in particular, the body that looks at the European football, is committed to not only to go carbon neutral by 2030, but there's launched this sort of marketing campaign around what fans can do to reduce their own carbon footprint. FIFA have also declared that they're going to go carbon neutral by 2040. And I I suspect that's something that's quite consistent amongst a number of bodies. But if it's something that gets talked about by fans or on shows or on phone-ins, no, it's not.
0: Right. So FIFA, who runs the World Cup every four years, they're the international body for football. What's their track record then when it comes to the climate crisis and environmentalism?
1: There's talk about it and there's schemes and there's initiatives. And in fact, they date back to 2006. FIFA launched its first Green Goals, which included helping to fund the creation of a power station in South Africa for the 2010 World Cup that would be powered by waste gas so there were these sorts of ideas and talking about you know recycling and all that sort of stuff and that's been going on for a long time and then climate change sort of stepped up in prominence and it, social justice and issues around that became something that the organization was much keener to talk about. They started working with the the UN on their climate change frameworks committed to the the UN sports for climate action framework in 2018 And at COP26 in Glasgow last year, FIFA turned up and they made a commitment to to reach net zero by 2040. That didn't change the underlying facts of football, which is the global game is powered by often chartered private flights across continents to get people to games or short private flights. I think I remember Arsenal once flew from London to Norwich, which is 100 miles away, uh, in order to make sure that they're players had the maximum rest and recovery time in between matches. So these sorts of things that underpin the game are the same as they ever have been. But what's talked about and the pledges and the action, inverted commas, is, is more prominent.
0: FIFA did make a big pledge that the World Cup in Qatar would be carbon neutral, The cards are definitely stacked against them in meeting that promise though. First off, let's talk about infrastructure. You need a lot of stadiums to host a World Cup and Qatar didn't have them to start off with, did they?
1: No, I mean, I think the the minimum criteria for hosting a FIFA tournament is to have eight stadia, which have to accord to various criteria on terms of scale and you need to have a number of Grounds that can hold 40,000 and one that can hold 80,000 for the final, that sort of thing. And I think it was the case that the Qataris had won the Al-Khalifa Stadium, which at the time was multi-purpose and not big enough to host um, a World Cup. So that had to be redeveloped and everything else, or seven other stadia, had to be built from scratch.
0: Qatar has said that it's planning on repurposing these newly built stadiums and they have constructed the world's first fully demountable stadium but if we're being realistic about this any kind of construction is going to have an environmental impact and then after that you've got to get the fans into the stadiums which brings us on to travel paul the fact that the world cup is in qatar will mean that for most people the only way to get there will be by plane
1: yes that's absolutely right by and large Everybody is flying in from, you know, four corners of the earth and a lot of people who will be coming from the region will also be flying in. So, you know, that is by far the greatest contributor to its carbon footprint. I think half of FIFA's FIFA made a calculation as part of their sustainability pledges and they more than half of it was calculated to be around travel.
0: Mm. And even though the tournament was moved to November to avoid the peak of the heat, it's still going to be really hot, especially for those of us used to European temperatures. So tell me some of the ways that Qatar are planning on handling this issue, the temperatures and how hot it's going to be.
1: The preparations for the World Cup have taken into account the heat and the sort of notorious concept that's been originated in Qatar, which is the idea of air conditioning stadia. So blowing cool air into open-aired edifices um, in order to keep it, the sort of temperatures amenable largely for spectators. They have a guy called Dr. Cool, Saud Abdul Ghani, who sort of invented this system and, uh, and he's shown people around one of the stadiums, the Al-Janoub Stadium, and they have 170 turrets at the side of the pitch, blasting out freezing air. And then they have grills under each seat, which take that cool air back out again, then it's recycled. So they're kind of claiming that this is a sustainable way of air conditioning. But they, there's also sort of more sensible, kind of straightforward ideas so that the Luzelle Stadium, as we mentioned before, the stadium that's going to be hosting the final, is being built at an angle so that it, the pitch will always be entirely in shade. So there's more traditional ways of dealing with the heat that the engineers have thought about and applied.
0: I love the moniker Dr Cool, although I can't imagine that environmentalists listening will be agreeing with that nickname.
1: No, it's catchy though.
0: (laughs) But you mentioned there the pitch. I was curious about that because I know that this summer, when it got really hot, you went out to the parks and the grass was totally frazzled. Are they able to do anything else apart from kind of angling the stadium to deal with what the pitch will actually be like?
1: I think the answer is broadly no and the statistics suggest that they even in winter each pitch requires 10,000 litres of desalinated water every day and that's 50,000 litres in the summer. You know they have a desalination plant so they claim that the water they're using is recycled and that they'll be using 40% less than international standards usually require to maintain these things but it's still an awful lot of water and you know there's only so far you can go through this uh, without stepping back and observing once again that this is a a grass-based tournament being played in a desert.
0: So, Paul, putting all this together, we've got carbon coming from the building of the infrastructure, we've got carbon coming from all the flights that people will have to take to get to Qatar, then we've got the heat and dealing with that, that's very energy intensive. It sounds like a lot of emissions for one single event And to make it a carbon neutral event, you need to know how much you're putting out in the first place. Have they calculated this?
1: Yeah, they have. I mean, another thing that FIFA's done for a long time is calculate its own carbon footprint. It's been doing it since the noughties. It undertook an audit as part of this sustainability plan. It found it was going to be creating 3.6 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, equivalent to And the annual release from an individual country and basically twice as much as the total that was produced at Russia in 2018. But yeah I mean these are astronomical numbers and the main way in which this is going to attempt to achieve to be carbon neutral is to buy carbon credits in exchange for the carbon sins they've committed.
0: Right so the way that this is going to be offset is through buying carbon credits. Have people agreed with that being an appropriate way of doing things?
1: I'm pretty sure they're not, simply because you don't have to be a member of Extinction Rebellion to sort of argue that the, the only way to uh, deal with a climate crisis is just not to emit in the first place. And you, you, there is no getting around it. you are encouraging people to use the most carbon intensive form of transport to get to the event. It's predicated on that. So, you know, I think some people would argue it's invalid from the start. The idea of then using carbon credits, it's something that is obviously a metric that is part of the common discourse around how to practically deal with emissions. And the carbon market is seen by many as a way of actually sort of effectively reducing emissions right now. The Qataris have come up with their own carbon credit scheme which has been internationally approved but you look at the projects that are being supported by these credits and you have like a a wind farm in Kosovo or a hydroelectric dam you'd want to drill down into how effective these are or how robust how long and all that sort of thing before you be I think somebody who's assuaged that you're actually you know what everything that's being done is being balanced out for sure. Do you
0: think football generally needs to work a bit harder on actually reducing its environmental impact and going back to what you said earlier, matching those actions to the pledges and promises that are made?
1: I mean, I think that is fundamentally where we're at. I'm one of these people who spends a lot of time in events staged by football governing bodies, so maybe I've got a bit of Stockholm syndrome or something, but I'm not inclined to entirely dismiss the power of football to lead by and example is not the right word because it isn't, but you know, by creating an environment where it's talked about and thought about, that I, I do think this has a power and a use and it and, and is and is worthwhile and should be supported. But I think beyond that, fundamentally, there's very little that you can see across the game as a whole, but it's sort of magnified by guitar, that you can say, well this is going in the right direction.
0: Well, Paul, it's been absolutely fascinating and it'll be interesting to see how this issue progresses within football, but I know that you're doing tons of other really interesting reporting on Qatar as well, so I'll be reading that. Now, I feel like I've had my initial football training from the science perspective, so thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks again to Paul McInnes. You can follow all of our coverage of the 2022 FIFA World Cup at TheGuardian.com, and you can also listen to the Football Weekly podcast. They've been expertly digging into all the news and all the controversies surrounding the tournament, and it will be the place to hear about all things World Cup. That's Football Weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you've been tuning into Science Weekly over the past two weeks, you'll know that this weekend also marked the end of the UN Climate Conference, COP27. I think it's fair to say that this year's outcome was a bit of a mixed bag. On the positives, a historic agreement was made for a loss and damage fund to help developing nations rebuild in the wake of climate disasters, but on the more worrying side, A resolution to cause emissions to peak by 2025 was taken out of the final text, and the conference was widely judged to be a failure on efforts to cut carbon dioxide. For now, we remain on the brink of climate catastrophe. If you'd like to know more about what's come out of COP27, then you should absolutely have a look at the brilliant coverage from Environment Editor and friend of the podcast, Fiona Harvey. She has done some really fantastic analysis on what to make of it all. And that's it for today. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is the Guardian. Ausgeglichene Preiswerte und leckere Mahlzeiten, das lässt sich nicht mit dem Lifestyle eines wahren Gamers kombinieren. Doch, und zwar mit HelloFresh. Wähle aus vielen leckeren Rezepten und lasse dir dafür die regionalen und qualitativen Zutaten direkt in deiner HelloFresh-Box liefern. Jetzt nur noch schnell kochen und schon kannst du deine Mahlzeit mit zum Zocken auf die Couch nehmen. Spare jetzt bis zu 100 Euro auf deine ersten vier HelloFresh-Boxen mit dem Code FSGAME100.